Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. One of the biggest and potentially most important steps in sending our children off to college is managing legal considerations related to college, including establishing accommodations, medical singles, dining, classroom and labs, and FERPA. To help you and your student navigate these waters, FACS General Counsel and Vice President of Civil Rights Advocacy, Amelia Smith, will explain legal considerations for the next steps once your student has accepted their favorite college. Before we start, we want to highlight FACS Platinum sponsor, the National Peanut Board, and thank them for their years of continued support and partnership. Welcome back, Amelia, to FACTS Roundtable Podcast. We're absolutely delighted you are joining us today to share critical information that's going to help our students and their families create a strong path for success at college surrounding their accommodations and legal considerations. So welcome. Thanks so much, Caroline. I always enjoy our conversations. I do too. I was actually very much looking forward to today. So now we're just going to jump straight into today's conversation. Once a student who manages food allergies is admitted to and accepts their college of choice, one of the most important steps needed to take place pretty quickly after they say yes is establishing their legal accommodations regarding their life on campus. And so this also includes commuter students. So it's not just students who are going to live on campus, but it's maybe students who are living at home or they're living already in an apartment type situation, but they're not going to be living on campus, but they still need those accommodations. So before we go deeper into this conversation and and start exploring this whole area here, can you explain to listeners about what type of legal protection students actually have going into college? And then also if you can confirm how a food allergy is considered a disability. I, I just want to basically create like a baseline of information as we head into the conversation today. Sure, Caroline. So there are a couple of laws that govern post-secondary education in terms of disability accommodations. The first law, of course, is the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which we look at now the ADAA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Amendment Act of 2008. So for post-secondary education, we look at Title II and Title III of the ADA. Title I covers employment, so of course it's not relevant here, I guess, unless your student is a student employee at college, which then it would be implicated. But for purposes of just regular post-secondary education accommodations, Title II of the ADA covers state-funded post-secondary programs such as colleges, universities, junior and community colleges, and vocational, which are career technical education programs. Title III of the ADA covers private post-secondary programs. 
And we also need to look at Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which you'll often hear me shorten to just Section 504 because that's quite a mouthful. But if the post-secondary education program receives federal funds, it is also covered by Section 504. All of these laws prohibit the post-secondary education program from discriminating against a student on the basis of disability. And they require post-secondary programs to modify their policies, practices, or programs to ensure that they do not discriminate on the basis of disability. So that leads us to the next question, which is, how are food allergies considered a disability for the purpose of the ADA in Section 504? In order to be a disability, it must be a condition that limits one or more major life activity. And so students with food allergies are at a risk for anaphylaxis, which is a life-threatening condition that can significantly impact the major life activity of breathing. Food allergies may also significantly limit other major life activities, such as eating, and can impact major bodily functions, such as the immune system, digestive, bowel, respiratory, and circulatory systems, which were all listed as possible major life activities by Congress when they revamped the ADA with the ADA-AA. So, as such, students with food allergies may be entitled to accommodations under the ADA in Section 504. So then, in terms of college and acceptance, as soon as a student accepts their college, they should immediately start their work on establishing accommodations because they have that legal right. Is that correct? That is correct. These laws apply to post-secondary programs such that post-secondary programs must provide students with disabilities reasonable accommodations necessary to have full and equal access to the school services, facilities, accommodations, and goods, unless the accommodation or modification would result in a fundamental alteration of the college's program by altering an essential aspect of the program, impose an undue burden, or result in a direct threat to the health and safety of others. Excellent. So reasonable really goes back to what you were just saying. If it changes too much and the college just is not able to handle it. When you look at the term reasonable accommodations, there are some interesting nuances there. For an accommodation to be reasonable, it must be necessary for the student to have equal access or ensure equal participation. The law requires equal access. It does not require equal success. Accommodations must be individualized. Students with the same disability may have different accommodations depending on the nature and extent of their disabilities and their needs. And when used in the context of post-secondary accommodations, reasonable does not mean what seems fair or reasonable to other students or to the average faculty member. In this context, you should think of reasonable more as appropriate. Thank you for that clarity. So now, if a student already has a 504 plan in high school, does that follow them to college? It does not. 504 plans do not transfer to college. The standard is not the same. In primary and secondary K-12 through education, the standard is FAPE, which stands for a free and appropriate public education. This is not the standard applied to post-secondary education because we know it's not free. Even if you're on scholarship, it's not considered free education. Other students are having to pay for it. So furthermore, it is the student's responsibility to self-identify to the university that they are a student with disability who needs accommodations. There is no child find responsibility in post-secondary education as there is in K-12. Thank you so much for that. I know we get that question a lot on the fact 
private Facebook group that's for parents of high school and college students. That's a real common question that comes up. Does that 504 follow them? Can they just carry it right over? So thank you so much. That was really important. So now regarding college, what legal obligations does the college have regarding providing a student with those accommodations? So as we said earlier, post-secondary programs must provide students with disabilities reasonable accommodations necessary to have full and equal access. There are some defenses to this, and that would be what I said, that they could deny these accommodation requests if they would result in a fundamental alteration to the college's program, impose an undue burden, or result in a direct threat to the health and safety of others. So really, to understand what reasonable accommodations are, you need to understand these defenses and why schools can deny a request. So schools can deny a request, as said, if it results in fundamental alteration of the school's program. Fundamental alterations is one that alters the essential aspect of the academic program. This is very rarely a concern with food allergy accommodations. We might see it come into play in a culinary program or a nutrition program, and sometimes even in science labs when the allergen may be used. You know, if you're allergic to finfish and you have a science experiment with the goldfish where you're freezing carp to see that they stay alive, that's one that we did in college, that could be problematic for students with a fish allergy. And of course, in culinary and nutrition programs, you're possibly exposed to all of the allergens, but there still should possibly be a way around that requirement and alternate substitute thing that you could do, or it could just be, requirement could be removed for that student, I guess would be a great way to say it. One of the other defenses, of course, is if the requested accommodation would impose an undue burden on the school. When considering whether an accommodation would result in an undue burden, you were to consider the school's total financial resources. So if you are asking for accommodations in the athletic program, you don't just look at the athletic program's financial resources. You look at the entire school's financial resources. Where So where the school may argue that, you know, women's athletics don't have that many resources because we know a lot of times the money's pumped into the the male athletics, the male football program is typically the, the largest supported athletic program in many schools. That's not the case. You don't look at that specific program's budget or resources. You look at the entire coffers of the entire program. So at a lot of these larger universities, we're talking millions and billions of dollars. Therefore, it's a really high standard to meet. It's pretty extreme to look at the entire university's program and say, okay, we can't offer this student a single room at a regular price because it's going to hurt us financially. That's just a drop in a bucket considered to all of their financial resources. And finally, the third defense is if the requested accommodation would result in a direct threat to the health and safety of others. You might see, you know, an argument here with maybe a service animal or something of that nature where it would affect another student who has an allergy, blah, blah, blah. But that's really not what this defense is for. There, of course, are other ways around it. You don't put a student with a service animal in with a student who has an allergy to the service animal. You would separate them and their living accommodations. So that's really not a defense that we see very applicable to food allergies either. These are absolutely golden nuggets of information because I think it's really important to understand the entire scenario. So now let's talk a little more about specific accommodations and, and what you often hear. Of course, when I'm talking to families, the top two areas of accommodation that we tend to see are in food services and housing. 
So in food services, there are a couple of areas of concern that we typically see. One being, you know, does the school require students living on campus to purchase a meal plan, even though the student cannot eat the meal service food? Another area is if the school outsources the responsibilities for its food service to an outside food vendor, such as Sodexo, Aramark, Bon Appetit, those kind of third-party service providers. And also, does the school train meal service staff on how to properly accommodate a student with food allergies? Thankfully, the requirements involving these questions were answered by the Department of Justice when they entered into voluntary settlement agreements with different universities. The two main cases that we discuss are the Leslie University Settlement and the Ryder University Settlement, which regarded allegations that these universities and their food service and meal plan policies discriminated against students with celiac and food allergies in violation of Title III of the ADA. The agreements with these schools required them to modify their dining services to accommodate students with food allergies. So for the Leslie University case, Leslie had a requirement that all students living on campus pay for a meal service plan, regardless of the ability of students with food allergies and celiac to safely eat the food provided. Under their voluntary settlement agreement, Leslie was required to modify its meal service plan so that students with food allergies can safely participate in meals served. They also were required to consider exempting from the mandatory meal plan purchase students who, due to a disability, cannot fully utilize the meal service plan. And also, they were required to train dining service staff on how to properly accommodate students with food allergies, post warning notices regarding allergens and food items that contain allergens, offer safe food items to students with food allergies, allow food allergic students to pre-order safe meals from dining services, and to provide a separate area to store safe foods and prepare safe meals. The other settlement agreement that we often discuss is the settlement agreement between Ryder University and the Department of Justice. Ryder relied on limited policies of its food service vendor, which failed to appropriately accommodate a student with celiac disease. It also failed to appropriately train its food service staff to safely accommodate students with food-related disabilities. In their voluntary settlement agreement, Ryder was required to make structural changes to its food services to provide allergen-free food preparation areas and dining facilities, create a pre-order option for students with food allergies, and to employ a full-time dietitian to advise and assist with addressing issues related to food limitation, food requirements, food restriction, food allergies, celiac, all of that. A lot of these cases involve students with celiac disease, but of course, That is also applicable to food allergies here. It is a disability that limits the foods that you're able to consume. So it would equally apply to students with food allergies. And you'll see this later on when we discuss a housing case. The actual student involved in that case, their disability was not food allergies, but it could be synonymous to food allergies. It's very easy to plug one disability in for another. Because if you have a disability, you have a disability. It does not matter what particular disability it is. All disabilities should be treated equal. So one other interesting twist to the Ryder case, which is what we discussed in our questions, is that Ryder was relying on their third-party service provider, whether it was Airmark, one of those companies. They were relying on this third-party company to accommodate students, and they were trying to say it was the third-party company's responsibility, and Ryder comes in and says, no, it is the university's obligation to provide these accommodations. It's the university's responsibility to make sure that their third-party company or third-party provider is accommodating these students appropriately. So it reminds us that the onus is on the university to provide these accommodations. It ultimately is their responsibility. 
And these cases you mentioned are on the FACT website. And would you encourage families to just take a look at them just so they have that knowledge? I would. These all are addressed and discussed in our legal consideration section, as well as the case that we look at for post-secondary housing services, which is the next thing for us to discuss. So for post-secondary housing, just as students with disabilities have a legal right to fully and equally enjoy the dining services offered by a school, the ADA language requiring schools to provide students with disabilities reasonable accommodations necessary to have full and equal access to school services, facilities, accommodations, and goods also ensures that the students with food allergies have a right to reasonable accommodations for housing. While many students with food allergies find that regular housing options are appropriate, or can be made appropriate with proper roommate assignments and agreements or rules regarding allergens, other students may need a single room, often called a medical single, based on the recommendation of their medical provider. So when we talk about post-secondary housing, we look at the SUNY Potsdam case. State University of New York at Potsdam has a voluntary resolution agreement with the Office for Civil Rights for the U.S. Department of Education. We typically shorten that to OCR. It's a lot easier than saying the Office for Civil Rights of the U.S. Department of Education. So the OCR found that SUNY had violated the ADA by charging an additional fee or surcharge to disabled students who required medical singles. Like I said earlier, it's important to note that the student's disability was not food allergies in this case, but this case equally applies to students with food allergies. In this compliance resolution, the OCR determined that if a student requires and is provided a medical single housing option under Section 504 and Title II of the ADA, the college or university may not impose a surcharge on the individual with a disability for this necessary accommodation and that the student should be charged the rate for a standard housing, typically that of a double room. So all three of these cases address most of the common issues we see regarding accommodations, typically those involving food service and housing. But it's also important to note that there are other areas to consider, such as athletics, marching band, other extracurricular activities, class program requirements, and sororities and fraternities. Typically, a lot of schools say that sororities and fraternities are separate entities outside of the university. But in those cases, you want to look at how much support the university provides. Does their sorority or fraternity house sit on school-owned land? How are they compensating the school for that, or are they? There there are several intricate ways that we can look at to say, okay, they may technically be a separate entity, but they're not because the school's still providing financial or significant assistance to those sororities or fraternities, and therefore the school should make sure that they are accommodating students as well. That's an excellent point. I forgot about sororities and fraternities that are affiliated with the school, or like you said, on property, and there is this relationship, and and also just clubs and intramural things, and there's a lot of different areas. There is, and it, you know, it's a lot to think about, but it's also important to remember that we, at fact, in our College Resource Center have checklists that involve many of these areas, such as housing, academic accommodations, things you need in your classes in case you have an allergic reaction. You know, do you need extra excused absences, things like that? Because I know a lot of classes, your grade, part of your grade is is dependent on your attendance in class. And so, of course, if you have an allergic reaction, that shouldn't penalize your grade. So that's an important accommodation to keep in mind. You know, we have checklists for athletics, classrooms and labs, travel orientation. You know, some schools offer 
overnight orientation, you have service animals. One issue that came up this year with the university was their orientation in the summer before school. You know, a lot of times we think of getting our accommodations in place or our students' accommodations in place before they step on campus in the fall. We forget that they may have to go in the summer for some orientation purposes. And we need to make sure that they will be accommodating their dining services and their housing, all of these things. So it really is important to get in there as soon as you're accepted and get with the disability services office and start this process to get these accommodations established well before the school year starts. Well, I'm glad you brought up arriving to campus early. A lot of students do come on early because of, like you said, academics and other programs and orientation and the dining halls aren't formally open. And so they're open once a day and it's very limited or they're not even open at all. And students are scrambling to get accommodations. I've definitely seen those kind of questions pop up in our group. And I've even had that personal experience, you know, with my own kids. So I'm really grateful you brought that up. But you also mentioned uh, singles. And so here's a question I have for you about singles. So then what happens if a college pushes back on a recommendation request and tells the student, I'm sorry, we have no singles? What does a student do at this point? And the situation I'm thinking of is either a new incoming student has requested a medical single and now the school saying they have none available, or maybe a student mid-year has had a situation and is now requesting a medical single. What are the next steps? What does a student do? So this is a multi-prong answer. So, of course, you know, as we said, when we discussed the SUNY Potsdam case, and there it was if a student needed a medical single and if the school offered a medical single. And we also know that there are defenses, school resources. Does the school have significant resources to be able to extend the student a private room? You know, if they have private rooms that they're allowing other students to pay for and they are open on campus, well, then that's not a very valid defense if they're single rooms that are just sitting there. But we did see this arise a lot in the early days of COVID when students were back on campus. A lot of the dorms were being used as isolation dorms. And so then it really did constrict and limit the school resources to be able to provide these extra medical singles. So it's really important that you start seeking your accommodations with the Disability Services Office, which I abbreviate as DSO. So if you hear me talk about the DSO moving forward, it's very important to start there. It's also important to note that your school or your student's university may not call the DSO, the Disability Services Office. It could be the Inclusion Office or the Student Success Center. So no matter what the DSO is called at your university, it's important to note that the DSO is the body or the office at the university that is tasked with making sure that the university follows and abides by these disability laws. So it's important to start there. If you go directly to housing or you go directly to food services without getting your need for accommodations registered with the Disability Service Office, you're really doing yourself a disservice because housing may not know what they legally have to do. Food may not know what they legally have to do, but the DSO does. And so it is best to start there. And then they may send you to talk to housing separately or to food services separately. Typically, they do this with some sort of document to verify your accommodations, but they may send you out there. 
even once they send you away to go talk to housing, they're not sending you away. If you have a problem with another division on campus, you go back to the VSO typically and say, I'm having problems with housing. They are telling me they cannot do this. Please help. And at that point, then DSO should step in and mediate or moderate your situation and help you get what you need. It's also important to note that if the school does not have the facilities for one reason or another to offer a medical single and your student does need it, if the school is one that requires students to live on campus, you may be able to get that requirement lifted for your student, for your student to be able to live in private housing outside of school. So that's another area to consider. And, you know, there's no real hard and fast rule to any of this. I think that's the most important part to take away from here. You know, what you may say one school over here has to do, a school 30 minutes down the road may not have the ability to provide the same services. So it really is a matter of crafting your accommodations to your individual need and what your individual school can provide. And that is something that we help parents do here at FACT. We offer one-on-one contact with parents to help brainstorm and say, okay, if the school is saying they absolutely cannot do this, what other accommodations can we ask for that will accomplish the same goal? And so it's very important to keep this collaborative approach with the university and to continue this give and take conversation of, okay, you're saying you can't do this. Well, here's the goal. What can we do to meet this goal? And we here at Factor help able to help you with those brainstorming ideas if you hit a brick wall. And regarding to how to access those brainstorming ideas, you can contact Amelia at amelia.smith at foodallergyawareness.org. So you can send an individual email and Amelia will be able to brainstorm with you. That is true. And I really enjoy having those conversations with families. That's probably the most fulfilling part of my role here at FACT. Well, I know I've definitely benefited from it. So I highly encourage everyone, if you hit a wall and you need some brainstorming, this is the expert right here. And so now before we move on to our next topic about legal considerations that are non-accommodation related, I do want to add in one tip as well, that as soon as a student is admitted and says yes to the college, immediately not only contact the college and start that accommodation process, but contact your physician and get in to get your most recent physical, or if you have an allergist, work with the allergist. A lot of allergists will also suggest that before a student heads to college, maybe they do some food challenges and just really get a good baseline reading on where the student's health is and what they need. Because a lot of the colleges are going to require either letters from the doctor or the doctor fills out their specific forms. And if you're anywhere like we are in Nevada here, we have a shortage of allergists. So you got to get your appointments in there early. So I just want to make sure everyone realizes, get those doctor's appointments set in there early. Yes, that is really important, Caroline. And you might even consider doing that because I know some allergists are six months out, you know, on appointments. So really, even before you decide you're going to this college or accept their acceptance of you per se, it's important to have that appointment set up because when you go to the disability services office, they are going to have paperwork and forms and information that they're going to request from you to ensure that they have the supporting documentation for the accommodations you requested. So, you know, as we discussed 504s earlier, your 504 does not transfer, but your 504, if you have one, may be 
very important to the Disability Services Office to see the kind of accommodations that you have received in high school or previously. So that is just another supporting document that you can present. But ultimately, your medical records, that letter from your physician, your allergist, is probably going to be the most important document you can provide to the DSO to support your need for accommodations. Very wise words for everyone here. Now let's turn our attention to the College Resource Center on the FACT website, which is found at foodallergyawareness.org. And there is a section there called Legal Considerations. And in that section, the power of attorney and healthcare power of attorney are mentioned. What are these and why might a student be interested in creating these with their parents and or caregivers? First, let's look at a healthcare power of attorney. A healthcare power of attorney, sometimes called a healthcare proxy, enables parents to not only access their students' health information once they become an adult, but also gives them the right to make decisions for their child if they are unable to. Not only does it waive the privacy rights provided under the Healthcare Insurance Portability and Privacy Act, also known as HIPAA, to allow parents to discuss the student's medical conditions with healthcare providers, but it also gives the parents the authority to make healthcare decisions for the student when he or she is unable to, as mentioned before. If the student is attending school out of state, it is a best practice to prepare two healthcare powers of attorneys, one in the student's home state and one in the state in which the student is attending school. Additionally, some colleges and universities may have their own preferred form. So it's important to ask your university this, but it's also important to know that these are often state-specific, as mentioned. So it's not something that I necessarily could, or we as fact could put out there and say, okay, here's a healthcare power of attorney form for you to use. It really is important to check and see if your home state and the state of your school has specific forms and if your university has specific requirements, because those are going to vary. The same goes for a durable legal power of attorney. As the parent or caregiver of a college student, it's often necessary to access the student's financial records to pay bills and handle insurance matters. A durable legal power of attorney is a document by which the student authorizes the parent or caregiver to handle such financial affairs. Typically, it's only necessary to prepare and file a durable legal power of attorney in the student's home state or their permanent place of residence, but it is something, again, that you need to check your state-specific regulations and laws involving. And again, it's something that we don't have just a blanket form that we could put out there because it is very state specific. A good place to start when considering these documents would be with with your student specific school. They may have areas to point you in for this. Staying on this topic, since most students are usually over the age of 18 or they start off as 17 and then move into 18 pretty quickly, how does that impact a parent's ability to advocate for their student because they're now 18 and becoming adults? So can you explain what FERPA is to our listeners? Certainly, FERPA stands for the Family Rights and Education Privacy Act. And so FERPA is what allows you as a parent to access all school records in K through 12. But once a student reaches the age of 18 or enrolls and attends a post-secondary education program, the student's educational records become private to the student and may no longer be accessible to the parents. Your student school should have a form for your student to complete that would allow the school to release their grades and disciplinary records to you. These forms may vary from school to school and should be obtained from your school directly. 
And it's also important that your student is the one who completes this and your student can limit what you have access to. They may say, okay, we want to give the parent the right to talk to the disability services office, but we don't want them to be able to access our grades. And that is totally the student's right at this point. So it is very important to have this candid conversation with your student because your student may want your help in having these conversations with the disability services office to get the accommodations they need. And a lot of times the DSO is going to say, we can't talk to you because we don't have the right under FERPA. So you get that release. But it's also important to note that even with the release, the DSO is going to be much more receptive often to the student coming in and talking to them than the parent. At this point, it is kind of one of those times where, you know, you have to have said, okay, I have taught you well. I have given you the tools that you need. You need to go out there and do this for yourself. And I can maybe step in if there is a, a situation that arises, a problem that arises. Because the school owes the duty to accommodate to the student. They don't owe it to the parent. So it's very important for your student to start these conversations early and to have them often and Caroline and I have had this conversation before. It's important to look for your champion in that office. You can go in there and you can usually tell if someone's on your side or not. And so I would encourage families to start the conversation with the DSO in that campus touring process. You don't necessarily have to disclose your disability at that point in time. And even if you do to the DSO, it's not necessarily going to get back to the admissions office. I know that is one concern that a lot of families have. When applying to college, do I disclose my food allergy then or not? Of course, it's illegal for the school to discriminate on admissions based on disability. But I do know that it's still a concern that a lot of families have that they'll come up with some kind of pretext to deny your student admission because of their disability. So even if you start the conversation with the DSO early, it's not necessarily going to get back to admissions. And it's also important to see if your student has someone in that office that they can build this rapport with and to have this relationship with. And if the DSO is very cold, non-responsive, it may not be the right school for you. So that is an important thing to consider because if you don't have a DSO that's understanding or that's out there championing the student's rights and needs, you're probably going to have problems. As much as I hate to say it, problems are probably going to occur and it may be a battle for the entire time that your student is in that school. So again, you know, when you are touring campuses and you want to go talk to housing and you want to go talk to food services, you really should also start your conversation with the disability services office. You know, chiming in with a a personal experience, when my son started at his college, he had asked, where's the disabilities office? And they didn't have one. And so they had said to him flat out, they said, we actually don't have one. We're developing one right now, but we will commit to you. Like if you apply here and you come to school here, we will commit to continue our search to hire somebody and to get accommodations set. And so even though he said yes to the school and they hadn't had the person in place yet, he had felt so confident with their passion and their commitment. So I think it really does make a difference. Like Amelia saying, how do they respond to you? Do you really see this is a good workable environment? Is that a good match? And then one other element to, I just want to chime in and add with too, with all of this and Amelia, you know, definitely touched on it, that the schools want to speak to the student. And so as they're going through these conversations with the schools, you know, you might consider that you're just sitting in the room. You're not participating, or maybe you're on the phone and you're just there as a note taker and you're just there as backup to support your student, but definitely encourage your student to take the lead, 
they should reach out to these offices. They should start having the conversations, meeting these people face to face or, you know, via Zoom, you know, or emails. And your role as support becomes very important as support, not as leading, but as support. Because I know for a lot of us, we've been leading this for what, 18 years, some shorter, but it's really important to pass that baton and empower that student. So true. And if you are a parent of a high school student listening to this podcast, just to try to get a feel of what you may be dealing with in a year or two years down the road, it's also a good time that if your student has a 504 or an IEP, some sort of accommodation plan in place, it's important to think about involving your student in those meetings now. If they're not already having your student in that room and allow them to kind of lead their accommodation meeting to help them build these advocacy skills before they leave your bubble and have to go out into the real world and do it on their own. That's another way to stand there and be in the room and handhold or do whatever you need to, to help your student build these advocacy skills that will carry them through life. That is a very important and excellent tip because that'll also increase their confidence. So when they do get to college, they're already feeling pretty confident with this. So excellent. Well, Amelia, I hate to say it, but our time together is coming to an end. I could keep talking with you, but we do have to end the show. So before we go, is there anything else you want our listeners to hear from you? As Caroline said earlier, feel free to email me at amelia.smith at foodallergyawareness.org if you're running into any problems or have any further questions. And if your student is in college and is having problems, I also encourage them to reach out to me. Or if we schedule a call to have it scheduled at a time when they also are available. I'm more than happy to speak with students with or without parents present once they reach college. Because, of course, they are ultimately the one the school owes the duty to. So I look forward to speaking with you if you reach out. And I have enjoyed our time together, Caroline. Thank you again, Amelia. You are such a busy person and these podcasts and our talks and our discussions are so important. So thank you very much for all that you do for FACT and for our families and for everybody. Before we say goodbye today, we just want to highlight one more time FACT's platinum sponsor, the National Peanut Board, and we would like to thank them for their years of continued support and partnership. Thank you for listening to FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.